When you're trading options, Fidelity has just what you need with straightforward but powerful tools to help you select a strategy and execute your ideas. And they offer a wide range of information and insights to help simplify your trading experience. Have a question? Ask it live during their small classes and coaching sessions. Need information? Check out their educational videos, articles, and webinars. See why it's easy to trade options your way at Fidelity. Start now at fidelity.com options. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events we invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast. I'm Dan Nathan, joined as always by Guy Adami. Liz Young, EY from SoFi, will be back with us later in the week. She must have had a super Sunday night. Guy, how was, mm. your, how was your Sunday night? Well, yo, yo, ma to you as well. Yeah. Sunday night was great. I thought the highlight of the evening, for me at least, was that Dunkin' Donuts commercial with Ben Ugh. Affleck and Matt Damon yeah. and Tom. It was Unbelievable! Best commercial I've seen in years. I mean, tremendous. Really? All right. So that that's like the equivalent of a dad joke right there coming from not Guy Adami. I, not I, at all. I, I found it kind of nauseating. I found all the co commercials a, a bit annoying. I thought Microsoft's Copilot ad, and I can't remember the last time I thought a Microsoft ad was kind of cool, but that one was okay. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to tell. I mean, I know we're off the rails here early. I wouldn't be able to tell you what that was. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, the entertainment value. I mean, babe, there goes Babe Ruth. I mean, Stop it, Ben Affleck. You are a genius. Yeah. Anyway, please. Yeah, back he, to you. He, he is a genius. All right, we got we got a lot to do here. Big week. There's still some earnings, plenty of earnings to talk about. We have CPI tomorrow. Um, you know, we'll mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how the markets have traded in and around that over the last six months or so. You and Danny had a great conversation with Luke Groman that dropped on Friday on the on the tape podcast. And we're gonna cover a little bit of that conversation because since he was last on with you guys in October, um, he's kind of changed his tune a little bit and makes a case for why Rick's assets could continue to go higher predominantly stocks at a 45 degree angle. I thought that was kind of interesting, but we get a lot of really thoughtful commentary from listeners, from viewers. And it's interesting that, you know, some of it has really centered around, listen, you guys have been great guides for us. We come back to you each week or each day because we think you guys call it the way you see it. And you guys are always the first ones to admit when you're wrong. And those folks, and you've made this point, you know, you've been a market pundit for what, 17 years or maybe a little longer, as long as CNBC 
has aired Fast Money and you've been a market participant for nearly 30 years. You know, transparency and honesty about your views and why they change is is one of those things I think um, is why you continue to do what you do. And I will say this is like I was on the set with you on Fast Money the other day and Melissa came to you and you start out by saying, you know, opening the show. Listen, I have been wrong about this for months. Most people do not do that. So shout out to you in that regard, guy. But, you know, one of the questions that you and I keep getting is from some people, when will you guys kind of change your tune about the broad market? I think our regular listeners, our regular viewers know that there's a lot of nuance in our commentary, right? And we often are very bullish on some sectors or individual names. If we're just kind of a moth to flame to the stuff that most of the consensus is bullish on, then you want to paint us as like counter trend sort of folks or, or, or contrarians or whatever. That's fine. But if you watch and listen to what we're doing every day, I think there's more nuance. So guy, talk to me a little bit about that because just, just again, a lot of the commentary that we're hearing back from people is centered around those sorts of ideas. Yeah, it's all fair. I mean, in changing your tune, you know, if the fundamentals suggested it, I would absolutely change my tune and acknowledge it. You know, maybe things are not as dire or things are not sort of aimed in the direction that I thought they were aimed in. But quite frankly, you know, I look around and see things continuing, at least through the lens that I look at, deteriorating. Now, the only thing that's not, obviously, is the S&P 500. And that's the lens with which everybody looks through. And I totally understand that. And quite frankly, if you're long stocks and if you're making money being long stocks, the reasons why they're going higher doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, that P&L is still on the P side of the equation. But I think you have to understand that at a certain point, things are built in sand. And I absolutely believe that's the case. And I look around and I see in the Luke Roman conversation was fascinating to me because he basically said what I sort of come to realize, the best thing that happened to the market last year, counterintuitively, was Silicon Valley Bank. And he made the point that, you know what? Fed came in, obviously flooded the system with liquidity. I get it. And they're not going to let things like that happen again. So the market, whether you want to believe it or not, probably has a backstop, which I also totally get. But with that said, people are making the same mistakes I think they've made all along. You're talking about consumer debt now north of $17.5 trillion, credit card debt north of $1.1 trillion, average rate on those credit card debts, 21.5% basically. Uh, You're starting to see upticks in delinquencies. Bank credit is basically contracting at the wrong time. I mean, there are a lot of things to be very concerned about, yet the market goes up each day. So am I going to change my tune? If all those things magically improve, then we'll have a conversation. They've actually been getting worse, not better. So yeah. I don't know how that makes me change my tune. You know, there was an article, and I think it's important to note, and, and there's a whole bunch of data points in there, and you guys can look at it. We'll put it in the show notes from Barron's over the weekend. S&P 500 can't mask the chaos beneath the stock market's mm-hmm. calm. This was an interesting tweet from Carl Quintanilla, SPX. CQ. At all, CQ at all-time highs, while the Russell, this is something, Guy, that you have pointed out for months and months, is in a bear market. Previously happened during one prior episode that kicked off in November of 1998. Interesting to note that during the prior episode, S&P 500's outperformance over the Russell 2000 continued on a one-month, three-month, and 12-month basis going forward. So, I mean, like, the Russell's interesting because of the sensitivity they have to rates, because of their cost of capital, because of small business, as you pointed out on many occasions, is two-thirds of the employers in the U.S. On the higher end of employment, 
we are starting to see the layoffs mounting up from large companies, not just major tech companies too. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think that differential between what's going on in the stock market among small caps and between the S&P 500 up five and a half percent on the year guy at, you know, new all-time highs, I think that spread, the wider it gets, really does signify at some point either the Russell's going to catch up to the perception of the economy or the S&P 500 is going to correct. Well, the perception of the economy is exactly right. But quite frankly, I think the market participants on that side of the equation understand why the small caps should be and are underperforming. Now, understanding that, and I want to be clear, a large component of the IWM, at least that's what we're looking at right now, is comprised of small and medium-sized banks. We obviously understand what's happened, obviously, in March, April of last year, and we understand what happened recently with New York Community Bank, right? We see what's going on around the surface. So it makes sense. There's some weakness, but the market weakness we've seen is more than just midsize and regional banks, right? There's a lot more going on. And I've said this for a while. You know, if you think about it, credit is the lifeblood of small and medium-sized business. Credit is contracting without question, which makes their job more difficult. On the flip side of that coin, you mentioned employment. Yeah, the unemployment rate is amazingly you know, 3738, in the wake of what's been at least 13 or 14 months, seemingly every week of another major company doing different rounds of layoffs, which by the way, show no signs of abating. So I don't really understand what the components are that have unemployment at these levels, given all the headlines we've seen, which leads me to believe it's just a matter of time before unemployment starts to tick up. And that has an impact on the economy, which subsequently will have an impact on the broader market in the form of the S&P. So I happen to think the Russell is what's telling the true story here. Yeah, it's interesting, at least on the job cuts for now, guys. Um, in, until we see a meaningful pickup in the unemployment rate, the job cuts are cheered by the stock market, right? For the most part, right? Yeah. You're, you're seeing those sorts of headlines and people are buying the stocks because, again, if you were worried about margin degradation, right, then, you know, the idea that you're seeing this sort of cost cutting, I would just say the one thing that might also follow that is cut back in R&D. And if we see that happen, then you start seeing where is a lot of the R&D happening? Well, it's happening in tech. It's happening around AI, right? It's happening around, you know, like these really expensive investments on things that a lot of companies are not going to be able to commercialize, not in the next quarter or maybe the next year or so, right? So they may cut back on those investments. And then if you see that, then you're going to see, obviously, a deceleration in the revenue growth of some of the big companies that have been driving the performance of the S&P 500. And I want to go to David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research this morning in a note. He highlights the fact that the Magnificent Seven have accounted for nearly 60% of the S&P 500's gains this year. He's also mentioning with the S&P 500 up nearly 5.5% on the year at an all-time high, the 10-day moving average of stocks guy on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ hitting new highs has fallen to its lowest level since July of 2023. Only 60% of large cap stocks are now above their 50-day moving average as of Thursday's close, down from 87% in December. So again, we keep talking about this narrowing. We keep talking about the outperformance of a small group of stocks. We've highlighted the fact that we've actually lost a couple in the MAG-7, right? So that's kind of concerning for the stock market. You obviously know that I agree with it. And you can't deny, I mean, the facts are what they are. And this chasm continues to seemingly grow. And, you know, you wonder how it's going to sort of resolve itself. And then I go back to some of the comments that David Einhorn made last week about, you know, market structure and passive investing and algorithmic trading sort of 
masking or leading to non-price discovery. I mean, I'm in accord with that as well. But all these things at some point get reconciled and they're not going to be reconciled to the upside, in my opinion. They typically get reconciled to the downside and things start to catch up. And passive investing is great. Money flows are great as long as the market continues to grind higher. But God forbid something were to happen that would stop the inflows and it actually cause passive to be active. As I've said dozens of times, it's never active on the way up. And unfortunately, things go down a lot faster. So beneath the surface, underneath the hood, whatever you want to say, there are absolutely things to be concerned about, but all being masked by an S&P 500 that's effectively at all-time highs. Yeah, and then you know some of these things we started out last week talking a little bit about the gains in Nvidia, and they've just continued. You know, the the uh, hi- uh, headline at the end of the week was you know that they're speaking to some of their customers like Microsoft and Meta and Amazon and Google who want to design their own custom chips away from Nvidia, right? right? And so that's the thing that kind of sparked a big rally there. And you know, I, Merrill Lynch is out. I think it's one of their strategists, um, Hartnett, and he's highlighting the fact that Nvidia is worth now as much as the entire Chinese stock market when you think of that, right? So think about that for a second. I mean, think about what you just said. I mean, we made the point last week, and not us, actually, it was Doug Cass that sent us an email that the market cap of NVIDIA north of $1.7 trillion was greater than the entirety of the XLE, which is amazing if you think about it. But more amazing is this statistic that now NVIDIA has surpassed entire Chinese stock market. I mean, again, it harkens back to something we saw, you know, what, Dan, I want to say 25 or 26 years ago when people were seemingly rallying around a handful of names that were groundbreaking and life-changing, and they were great companies, but bid up to valuations uh, that made zero sense. Yeah, you know, and to highlight that, our friend Peter Bookvar from Bleakley Advisors, and who writes the book report um, that we read every day, so check that out there, people, he sent us a tweet yesterday, and he was quote-tweeting somebody, there's a Cisco 2000 versus NVIDIA 2024, the laws of parabola in play, and so he was just kind of showing the uh, what happened to Cisco on its path to its highs and then obviously how it corrected. You could make the argument that NVIDIA is a very different stock, but the sentiment is very similar. But Peter's comment was, one, the backbone at the time of the fledging massive gross phase of the internet. The other, the backbone of the massive gross phase of generative large language models and AI. Similar themes, which is what you just alluded to. But the one thing that I think is most dangerous um, is that we just talked about NVIDIA being at $1.8 trillion in market cap. It has gained 50% since its lows a little over a month ago. It has gained $900 billion in market cap. This aggression cannot stand, man. And that is obviously <laughs> a quote from the dude. I mean, it just cannot. And, you know, I had a comment. I don't look at my um, comments on on Twitter or, you know, threads too frequently. Um, and somebody tweeted at me or threaded at me. I think it was on threads or something. He's like, dude, you know, like I made a comment last week on Fast Money. I'm like, this stock could crash. I mean, this stock could be down 15, 20% in a clip when they report next week on February 21st. You cannot go up like this. This is a mania in and of itself, guy, without the potential for something really bad happening. And this guy, I don't know who he is, but he was just saying, you know, you're, you sound like somebody on Fox Business and calling for doom or this and that, or whatever. I mean, does that make sense to you? Because it has crashed up. So why couldn't it crash down? And I'm not calling well, for it. It's interesting you say that. Um, and we've made this point many times, but we'll make it again here. You know, panic is associated with moves to the downside, which I totally understand. Panic selling. You never hear 
the term panic buying because you know it does it's not intuitive to people like how can you be a panic buyer but quite frankly to your point and that math suggests exactly that has been happening it's been panic buying to the upside because god forbid money managers or hedge funds or institutions or whomever are not involved in the name that creates career risk so you absolutely see panic buying. So it, it doesn't resonate with people, I understand. And I understand the want for things just to go up in perpetuity. But we've learned the hard way over many years that that's not the case. And every stock, again, you know, it's a great company. We've never said anything negative about NVIDIA, the company at all. What we've mentioned a number of times, mostly incorrectly on my end, but correctly sometimes, is that the valuations just don't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. And you know, again, you're talking about a company that may do, and I'm. This is an emphasize. I'm rounding up. They may do a hundred billion dollars uh, worth of revenue next year, which makes them Dan traded close to almost 18 times revenue, which is a staggering number in that industry. Now, people will say they'll continue to grow into it. It takes tremendous, you know, just to keep up that pace. Talk about history repeating itself. Again, an amazing company, but it harkens back to Scott McNeely, the CEO of Sun Microsystems. They were the darlings, one of the many darlings of the dot-com bubble. And, you know, he did the math for folks out there in terms of the valuation that his stock was trading at. We'll put it in the show notes, but he basically said, at 10 times revenue, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. It assumes I pay no taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So the assumptions around that growth are preposterous. Now, nobody wants to hear it right now because the stock goes up every day. Unfortunately, people will start to talk about it if they change their tune to the downside. Yeah, you know, it's also interesting that you bring that up. Um, You know, Sun Microsystems was also like this really integral part of the build out of the internet, right? So what did they do? They made servers that powered all these companies that were doing this digital transformation towards the internet. That was going to be the start of uh, e-commerce, of you know all, all sorts of things, right? Like that were going to happen over decades. I mean, that's really like much of the case that you're hearing about Nvidia too. But we also highlighted last week the fact that Sun Micro at the time was involved in vendor financing, right? So they were actually giving startups capital to come back and buy their servers, right, to kind of grow their businesses. And when things slowed down, and eventually mm-hmm. we obviously had a recession, and all of those startups went out of business, you know, Sun Microsystems, I think, lost at least 80% of their value or so from its highs in 2000. So that's a good point of reference there, Guy. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, 
their community overseas an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Let's talk a little bit about earnings. Um, you know, even last week, we're seeing some of these big gaps to new all-time highs, you know, when companies were beating. Um, there were some on the other side. We highlighted a little bit, I think, during market call. You know, companies like Air Products and stuff, when they disappointed, they got hit pretty hard. Snap, I think, lost 40% of its value at one point. So, you know, Danny's been talking about this a lot on the pod. We're probably going into a much harder macro period where it's going to become more of a stock picker's market and things that are um, beating and raising are going up a lot and things that are missing and guiding down are going down a lot. But that also increases. Like when I see that sort of dispersion guy and I see like this increased volatility on those measures, it does get my antennas up, especially when we have a VIX as low as it is. We have complacency readings really high. We have the fear greed index. It's kind of pointing Uh into that kind of overdrive sort of period. We have this yields that have risen. The 10-year guy is just below... 417 as we speak. I think you and I both thought if we were going to go from 3.8 in the 10 year up to 4.2, that equities would not be trading above 5,000, but they are. We have the backdrop of a stronger dollar. We have the backdrop of crude oil that's rallied. We have the backdrop of increasing tensions in the Red Sea, which speaks to me the potential for supply chain disruptions. I don't know about you, but every day I hear about some of the biggest shipping companies that are avoiding the Red Sea despite the fact that the U.S. and the U.K. have dialed up, you know, bombing missions to kind of thwart, you know, some of the attacks and and shipping routes and the like. But all those things are are inflationary, guys. Without question. And you know where I stand on that front. You know, I thought into the fall of last year, we'd start to see a reacceleration of inflation. And it sort of happened, but not really. But I'm not going to back away from that. I think that's going to happen. But, you know, of course, everything you mentioned, the bulls will say, Dan, We know all these things, and I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, but the bull case is everything you just said are known quantities or known entities are known storylines, yet the market continues to go up regardless. So isn't the market discounting all that stuff? And I guess to a certain extent, the market is. But again, then it goes back to some of the things that Einhorn said, basically talking about how the market or passive investing masks a lot of these things and you know you can hide not hide behind but you can rally around the fact that the market is discounting all the bad news and i get it and that's very encouraging of course the problem is you know as you continue to do that it just takes one event to sort of change the narrative completely i don't know what that's going to be but given everything that you talked about and given all the damage below the surface 
you know, it's out there just waiting in the weeds. It's also an interesting guy. We wake up this morning on a Monday. There's two pretty decent size M&A transaction. Mm -hmm. uh, Diamondback is buying Endeavor for $26 billion in the oil patch. And then we have a deal. Gilead is buying a company for $4.3 billion. So it's interesting that we're seeing M&A. Capital markets seem shut. The folks I talk to, the IPOs, people want that market to reopen. It doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon, which is kind of weird with the stock market at all-time highs. You know, we're not seeing a lot of secondary sort of activity, but we are seeing strategic um, M&A. The stuff in the oil patch is pretty fascinating. You wake up to a headline like this. What is this, the fifth or sixth deal that we've heard of? Large deal in the last six months or so. The energy M&A that we started talking about in earnest last year has continued. I mean, it's just a matter of time before you see renewed enthusiasm around M&A and the energy patch. Why? Because valuations are extraordinarily reasonable. And it's still an opportunity, I think, for a lot of these companies to consolidate and to grow. I think that's exactly what we're seeing. The unfortunate part of that equation is nobody seems to care right now because of the moves in the technology name. So when you can get a one, two, three percent daily move in some of these high flying tech names, why even bother looking at energy stocks that sort of grind along? So I think the technology euphoria has sort of put a dampening effect on this energy patch. But again, if there is a rotation out of technology, which I think is going to happen, I think it's going to find its way into the energy space. I think market participants are going to start to realize why you're seeing all this M&A, because valuations are reasonable. And it's an industry that, quite frankly, is probably operating the, the best they've ever operated in the history of the space. Let's hit a few earnings before we get out of here. A couple that are on my radar here. Airbnb reports, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was one of the one of the stocks that got slammed last week was Expedia. I mean, there's some stuff that was specific to Expedia, but, you know, Airbnb competes with Expedia, their Verbo division and the like, and it might just be a broader read on consumer sentiment. And, you know, like, obviously we saw this huge push post-pandemic. I mean, this one is interesting to to me, guy, because I, I think it's one of these stocks that post its IPO in 2021, or maybe it came in late 2020, this stock got nearly to, I think it got to 220. Here we are. It got mm -hmm. as low as, as maybe 80, and it's trading at about 150. From a technical standpoint, looks like it's about ready to break out. I mean, on a valuation you know, standpoint, not like crazy, unreasonable, um, you know, on a gap basis, here's a company that is, you know, considerably profitable, right? And they have uh, reasonable revenue growth here of about low teens for next year and, um, you know, trading about 31 times and about eight and a half times sales and, and, you know, unique business model here. But this is one that I'm really curious to see if it is a beat and raise, does the stock have one of those big gaps like we saw last week out of a Disney? There's a stock that was not gapping to a new all-time high, it was still well off its lows, but but if investors had a reason to buy it, it barely saw a downtick the day after its earnings. So I'm just curious, thoughts on that one, because not crazy valuation, but also not crazy growth either. No, but we heard some things out of Expedia, I think, that should sort of put a wet blanket or wet, whatever they call that, yeah. the wet towel or- Yeah, know, blanket's fine. Wet blanket on Airbnb. So- there's so many cross currents here. I mean, it's amazing. You're talking about a company that's approaching $100 billion. So, you know, I'm watching that clearly. I think that's sort of a tell on the consumer in a broad sense. But the one that I'm sort of honed in on is Cisco on Wednesday, which I really think is fascinating, given the move or given the technical setup. And if you look at Cisco, Dan, you can make an argument that you put one shoulder in back in 2019. You obviously had the head if you want to look at a chart. Going back to, I want to say, December of 2021, when we traded 
north of $64. The other shoulder probably comes in around 58 in September of last year. Head and shoulders pattern for Cisco, which just announced a huge round of layoffs last week, um, and the stock got a little bit of a bounce on it. One has to wonder um, how the importance of Cisco, again, some 20-something years later when we were talking about it as sort of the behemoth in the technology space. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned the job cuts last week. Okay, so when this company reported back in mid-November, the stock gapped down, I think, about 10% on a quarter that beat, but they lowered guidance for the full year, that their fiscal year that they just entered for 2024. I think estimates for this year were like probably 410 or so. They kind of guided towards 387. A 10% drop on that I thought was kind of surprising and a revenue cut of a few percent. So the fact that they put that announcement out, Guy, you know, a week before they're going to report, maybe tells you that they're having a hard time even getting to that lower guidance for Mm -hmm. the year. And then when you think about just their exposure geographically, their exposure to enterprise, but also government, there's some things there. The dollar has rallied, obviously, over the last few months. So I think about 50% of their revenues come from outside the U.S. So this is definitely, to me, a really interesting one. I think about for 2024, it's trading about 13 times. Times, not expensive, but earnings are expected to decline, you know, year over year. So what are you going to pay for that sort of weak earnings and sales growth that are expected to be down 5%? Um, I'm also focused on that one. I'm not a buyer into that, but I think a lot of what they have to say will be really interesting. Last one I want to hit is Deer. Cat made a new all-time high, I think a week ago or so after its earnings and guidance. And, you know, Deer is off 15% from its recent 52-week, and I think there were also all-time highs. Thoughts there, Guy, because... Um, just a read through on industrials, which are trading pretty well overall. You know, we were spending a lot of time on the concentration of the broad market and these mega cap tech stocks and how much of the performance so far year to date or over the last few months has been that. But there have been some sectors that have been performing. They've been underperforming big cap tech, but industrials have traded pretty well too. You look at Deere and Company, um, it's been basically trading in a pretty narrow range in terms of percentage since. I want to say the spring of 2021. It was about a $395 stock. And since that time, we probably rallied up to like 440 or so, maybe traded down to three and a quarter or so. But you've averaged pretty much the price we're trading at now. So we've gone effectively sideways. Now, a lot of people will say that's a consolidation pattern, getting ready to take the next leg higher, which I would totally understand. A lot of people would say we can't get through those prior highs Uh, we're about to roll over. I have no idea, but I'll tell you this. If in fact you get that, you don't fade the move either way. So if this thing starts to break, I think you buy strength. And if it starts to roll over, I think that's a tell that, you know what, this consolidation pattern was a bit of a fake out and we're headed a little bit lower. So here, I'm just sort of watching. I'm letting price be my guide post earnings. Yeah. All right. We're going to be covering it all on the market call each day at one o'clock, Monday through Thursday. Um, We have Carter Braxton Worth with us a couple days a week. Liz Young will be back with us too. So we'll be previewing some of those earnings events. We'll be offering some trade ideas, both in options, ETFs, and also in the futures market. So check all of that out. Check out the conversation that Guy and Danny Moses had with Luke Groman. If you are an equity investor, if you are all in 
on this market. Listen, he made a very bullish case for stocks, but he didn't make it because of the stock market. He made it because of some of the stuff that he's looking at in the treasury market, that he's looking at in, in some other markets that are helping inform his views about how equity prices could continue to inflate. And I think that's an important conversation. And, you know, for us, guy, I mean, you use this term all the time. You know, you don't want to be dogmatic. You and I, as kind of market pundits, let's say, when we put that hat on right now, I mean, one of the reasons that we're doing what we're doing is we're trying to point out where the consensus could be wrong, right? And so right now, the consensus is getting fairly euphoric. Why do we talk about NVIDIA each day? Not too different about why we talked about Tesla each day until it broke, you know what I mean, recently, is to highlight the point that when these stories change, they really can fall off. And then they have the potential to help snowball, you know, some of the other mm-hmm. similar sorts of stories. And so we're not your hedge fund manager. We're not your broker or your investment advisor. We're just trying to kind of give some alternative sorts of views about how things can go the other way. And you made this point, Guy. There were numerous times in 2022, despite the fact that we were very bearish on the market heading into that year, and we remain so there were times that we turned, um, and you and I in particular, in similar sorts of times, and caught some 20% rallies. So just like you could catch a 20% rally in a bear market in 2022, there's also a really good chance in 2024 that there's going to be a 10 to 20% decline. And some of those favorite stocks that have powered all of those gains are going to go down a lot more than the stock market. And that's been evident from Tesla. So that's why we remain focused on NVIDIA, and we will continue to do so, Guy. Yeah, and look, I mean, again, I cannot sleep at night if I didn't bring forth some of the things that concern me. And people will say, you know what, you're the counter indicator of all time. That's fine. I can live with that because if I didn't voice some of my concerns and God forbid some of these or many of these came to fruition, you know, I would say, you know what, guy, you didn't do your job. So, you know, we're just trying to point out some of the things that can go wrong. And as Bill Parcells used to say, the best time to sort of point out the flaws of your team or when the team is winning. The same way to try to point out some of the flaws in the stock market is when it goes up every day, Dan. Yeah, matter of fact. All right, well, listen, we appreciate our audience. We appreciate the feedback, both good and bad. And I think a, a lot of our regular listeners and viewers um, kind of know what we are here to do and what our mission is. So we appreciate you. Keep that feedback coming. Guy, I'll see you on the market call later today. I'll see you on CNBC's Fast Money later tonight. Thanks, everyone, for being with us. And we'll see you back here on Friday with Danny Moses. We have a great conversation, actually, with Cameron Dawson, who's going to be in the studio um, with us. And we're going to break a whole host of things down. So check it out. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.